All right, my guest today on the A-Game podcast is Michael Ian Black. Michael Ian Black is one of the original members of MTV's The State, which, as everybody probably by now knows, is one of my favorite shows. We've had almost the entire cast on now, and I'm going to keep pushing to get the rest of them on, but he was one that I've been really wanting to get on. I've been a fan of Michael's for a very long time. He's funny. He's smart. He's sometimes controversial. He's been open. He's been silly. There's so many different phases of this guy that have made me um, listen to him to laugh, to learn, to many different things. He's a polarizing figure on social media, and uh, his podcast, How to Be Amazing, has had some amazing guests, no pun intended. He really brings his A-game to everything he does. I think he's a perfect fit for this podcast, and we talk about a lot of different things from uh, punk rock in New York City, New Jersey growing up, to the struggles of working through uh, castmates of 11 alphas in New York City with no leadership, to the daily struggles of entrepreneurs. So he also uh, shows a little bit of his sensitive side with his new book, a Better Man, which is a mostly serious letter to his son, where he talks all about some of the things he learned growing up and some of the misconceptions of masculinity and talks a lot about things like economic anxiety and struggles of entrepreneurial burnout. So again, if you don't even know who he is, you don't watch the state, it, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are in business, in real estate, entrepreneurs, athletes, and the same things keep coming up. And I think this is a very relevant episode because somebody who's been successful in business, especially as an actor and a comedian and a writer, which is a very high turnover, very high stakes. You got to earn it every day. You got to work every day. You got to second guess yourself. You got to compete with other people. There's always something new coming on. There's tons of social comparison and there's no guarantees. And I think that that's a constant theme with so many things in life when you chase your dreams. So we talk a lot about that, how to deal with that mentally, how to deal with that over long term, how to, how to handle that and just how to navigate that bumpy road of success and entrepreneurial burnout and self-doubt. So you will get a lot from this, whether you are a fan of his or not. This is a great episode to listen to for anybody who's chasing their dreams or dealing with struggles or insecurities, or again, just burnout from years of trying to hit your goals or hit your stride. So I think he's very relatable. I think he's very honest. We had some funny moments. We had some fun moments. We had some serious moments, and I very much enjoy talking to him as always. So definitely check out the show notes for all the ways to connect with him. Listen to his past podcast episodes. Check out his books, his movies, the things he's written, the things he's directed. Uh, Stella was hysterical. Viva Variety. He's been in so many funny things over the years. Uh, that cast as a whole, I'm just a big fan of all of them. And he was Bradley Cooper's first on-screen kiss. So there's a feather in your cap right there. I think you guys will really like this episode. More importantly, if you are interested in getting involved in real estate, contact me today, nicknicknick.com slash links. for all the ways to connect with this show, please subscribe through that. You'll find all the different channels and platforms, and you'll find all the ways to connect with me on social media. Just send me a direct message through there, or you can email me podcast at nicknicknick.com about getting started in real estate, whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, whether you're looking to get into fix and flips, rentals, small commercial deals, or land development, we have a way for you to get it fit in. Whether you want to buy properties from me, sell properties to me, or partner with me on some level, let's make this deal that you get some properties on your books and you get some money in your pocket and start to get your time back so you can spend more time doing the things you love, like maybe going on auditions for acting, writing your stand-up comedy, writing your books, or doing some real estate deals, or just hanging out on the jujitsu mats or going to the beach. Whatever it is, real estate is the vessel to help you get your time back and get some more money in your pocket. If you are looking for money, which most people are, let's get you connected with today's sponsor, Nationwide Business Capital Group. Contact Marianne directly through nickandnick.com slash links. You will see under affiliates a way to email her directly to get going, whether you're beginner, advanced, intermediate, whether you're looking for a bridge loan, a commercial loan, a fix and flip loan, or a long-term loan, loan for your rentals, Marianne can help. If you are a beginner, don't even worry about that. Whether you have experience, no experience, credit, no credit, good credit, bad credit, doesn't matter. 
Mary is your first point of contact to figure out what type of deals we can get you into and get you funding for all the deals you need. And if you are experienced, she's a great resource for you. She is one of the most creative and aggressive lenders today. So she will find ways to get you better LTVs, better rates and terms. And if you are looking for a way to get creative, she is one of the most creative and honest lenders out there. Contact her today. Tell the A-Game Podcast sent you over. And last but certainly not least, go on nicknick.com slash biggerpockets for a free checklist on how to bring more value to your buyers, whether you're a real estate wholesaler or real estate agent or broker. This is a free checklist for ways to help bring you more value to your buyers. So definitely check it out today. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to Michael Ian Black, and thank you to all the members of MTV's Estate for being so awesome, sharing your time and sharing your experience. This was awesome for me. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Michael Ian Black, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands, people that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-Game. All right. My guest today on the A-Game podcast is an actor, writer, author, director, producer, comedian, and successful podcast host. You have seen him in so many feature films and shows, including the iconic MTV's The State, which, as everybody knows, is one of my favorite. Of Viva Variety, all the wet, hot American summer shows and film. Michael and Michael have issues. Stella, Reno 911, I Love the 80s, Insatiable on Netflix, Bernie Love, Ed Reaper, The Ten, Wayne Days, and also hosted The Late Late Show. He's been the writer of Run Fat Boy Run and Waiting Days and the podcast host of Obscure and How to Be Amazing with Michael Ian Black. And he has some notable stand-up specials, including I Am a Wonderful Man and Very Famous, author of many books, including children's books, um, My Custom Van and A Better Man, a mostly serious letter to my son. He has shared the screen with some of the greats, including Simon Pegg, Paul Rudd, Riley Cooper, husband and proud father of two. Welcome to the A-Game Podcast, Michael Ian Black. Thank you, Nick. So nice to be here. I am really impressed with uh, everything you're doing. You know, I find you very interesting. I told you I've been a fan for a long time, but the state obviously is how I, f- I first saw you. And I've, I've listened to your podcast. I've listened to you on other podcasts and I've heard a lot of interviews and I, I did read your book and I feel like you're a very interesting character because initially, you know, younger me watches you do goofy stuff on the state and then hearing all the lessons and the way that you've evolved as a person, you have a lot of different sides. So I thought your book was really interesting to kind of go behind the scenes of the life lessons you've learned and passed on to your son. And I think it was something that, um, you know, the more I, I get to know people, especially like some of my friends that are in bands, I realized that their their musical influences aren't really the type of music that they're playing. And I find a lot of the same things, like as I talk to people with you, is just, you know, goofy, silly comedies isn't the only thing. Like you're you're appreciative of the arts and stuff. So growing up, was that really the direction you thought you were going to go with like comedian and sketches and stuff like that? Or were you looking more towards, a, you know, a, a different role in entertainment or not entertainment at all? I definitely did not anticipate being in comedy. Uh, that was never my intention. It was never my goal. Um, I liked comedy. 
Um, but I never thought like that I would make a career out of it. I thought I would be an actor. I, I was definitely like trying to be an actor from a very young age, but I didn't, I wasn't pointing in the direction of comedy. Um, and, you know, I didn't really think I'd make it as an actor either. You know, I just sort of thought, well, let me try this and I'll just be poor and that'll be my life. You know, growing up or being in, you know, late teens, early 20s in New York City on the state, one of the questions I've asked a lot of your other cast members was I find it interesting being in business now because I find so many similarities between just working and emotional intelligence and a lot of the stuff that you deal with as, as your career as we do in ours. But it didn't seem like there was really any leadership when you started going through that and having, you know, 11 of you that are probably all alpha, all opinionated, all young, you know, make it in New York City. What was that experience like? And what did that teach you moving on into life? Like what lessons did you learn about leadership and working with a group then that helped you now? Well, you're right. The state, which was my sketch comedy troupe, um, started in college as a college comedy club. And it was designed from the get-go to be a kind of democratic organization. We deliberately did not have somebody in charge of it because Todd Hollebeck, who was the one who started it, felt like that could be stifling for people, that it, to give everybody their best opportunity to express themselves and to have a voice, we would do things more democratically. And as a college comedy club, that worked pretty well. It became a little bit unwieldy as we moved into the professional environment when decisions had to be made quickly. We maintained that organizational structure through our history and it definitely had its pros and its cons. The pros was that you, one did feel like you had an opportunity to kind of express yourself how you wanted to express yourself. Um, you didn't needed to go by, you didn't need to, to win over any one person, but you did need to win over a majority of the group. So that forced people to get better at what we did, because um, you had to convince enough people that what you were trying to do was worth doing. Obviously, like one of the downsides is that it makes it really hard sometimes to move forward um, with a unified voice. I think we learned pretty early that at least to the outside world, it was important to us to create a unified front that we wanted to be a kind of singular entity that was barreling through New York and barreling through the comedy scene. And that aggression and that arrogance paid off for us because we ended up with our own television show and we ended up carving out careers for ourselves. But in the long run, it may have been unsustainable. I mean, in the long run, it was unsustainable. We didn't, we weren't able to keep it going, I think, largely because of the organizational structure. It, it, it was good and it was bad. And, you know, it ended up being, sometimes it was just more cumbersome than it was worth. Was there a, a big brother mentality as far as like, when you go in that room, you're pitching your sketch or your idea, and then other people within the group can shoot it down, but then, if like, because from what I understand, then it has to go to somebody else. And like, if that person shoots it down, I'm sure that kind of stinks. But then does everybody kind of rally around or is it hard to separate that? I know you talk a lot about emotional intelligence, but you know, you're in a room with your buddies, you pitch something, a few of them shoot it down and something you really want, it doesn't get aired. And then that night you guys got to go out 
for drinks and you got to pretend that you're not pissed off. You know, was it easy to separate that or did that become something that carried over from day to day? I think, well, one of the things that we, one of, one of our strengths was that we were hard on each other. I mean, not in, I don't think we were personally hard on each other. It was never like, they were never personal attacks, but it was, it was very dog eat dog and very competitive and very cutthroat. And so you learn to take your lumps pretty quickly, but I wouldn't say it affected us outside of the room. Like we would, I mean, we would go out to, to drink pretty much every night. We were hanging out <laughs> together pretty much all the time. There were definitely cliques that formed within the group, but it didn't really, it didn't really affect um, friendships or the quality of the material. And there were times when people would get pissed at each other. And there were people who at times like didn't like each other for long stretches, but all of that, you know, eventually got resolved and, and it worked itself out, but, you know, it was 11 people, you know, 11, 10 dudes, one girl, um, people in their early twenties who didn't have maybe as much emotional intelligence and, and, certainly no professional experience trying to navigate our way through a professional environment. And it was hard. It absolutely was hard. Did you have a mentor or somebody in your life that was friends or family that helped guide you through that? Because I, I don't think I was even ever really aware that I didn't have good emotional intelligence or some good social awareness for business situations. And Michael Patrick Jan actually brought this up too, that he was saying like, looking back, he wished he would have realized earlier that you can't talk to everybody in business like they're your college buddies, but that was kind of like his first experience. And that was mine, you know, doing deals with my buddies. And then it carries over. And I had somebody who would point stuff out and it would always suck when I'm, I'm walking out of the room, like oh, I killed it. And she's like, well, no, you didn't. You didn't read that room the right way. Here's how you should have handled that. And I'm so quick now to identify that in other people, but it's been a major shift for me personally and professionally of noticing that and trying to control that. But if I didn't have somebody point that out and kind of give me the, the bad news about that first and correct it, I don't know if I would have ever made that change. So I'm always surprised when people do to see what, what really kicked that in or what was the catalyst for that? For us as a, so I personally did not have a mentor that I felt like could really navigate, help me navigate um, through all those ups and downs. Um, but the state as a group, when we, started our show on MTV, we brought in a producer named Jim Sharp, who was, I don't know, maybe 15, 16 years older than us, um, had a lot more experience in television. Obviously we had none and did a great job of shepherding a unwieldy group of arrogant kids through the television production process and brought a level of professionalism to the office environment that we really needed. Um, while at the same time allowing us to just sort of do what we do and to, you know, at times be rambunctious and weird and, and creative, but he really, he really professionalized the atmosphere and made it possible for us to make a television show. But he was the one that I think introduced us to what the world of professional entertainment was. I think that's really cool. You know, I won't talk and we have so many things we want to cover. I won't go too deep into this state, but it played a big part of my life and my buddies' lives growing up. I still find it hysterical. Have your kids watched it? They've seen a little bit of it. Like I don't, you know, I don't, I don't generally show, I, I, I never say, Hey, watch, sit down and watch this. My wife sometimes will do that. Um, but I, you know, I don't need, to, I don't need them to watch my shit. You know, <laughs> when I'm dead, they can take a look at it if they want. 
it, I mean, you know, I watch things sometimes and I'll be like, all right, I guess why, why I would have found that funny then, but like the state and Maryville Trojan are two shows that I'll watch. And I'm just like, man, this is just as funny, if not more. Cause I understand a lot of like the little things that I might not have caught then, but man, I just, I find it amazing. And one, one of the remarkable things I think about it is I've said this probably like 40 times now, but everybody talks about Kevin Bacon being the degrees of separation. You can link anybody back to Kevin Bacon. I feel like that's what the state is, man. You could take anybody and basically anything and find one or two people that are connected to somebody that was on that show. And I think like you were saying, you know, I, I know the backstory of it was on CBS and then you guys split a little bit and there was Viva Variety and there, there was some, some hurt feelings and stuff, but obviously it reconnected. And I'm always amazed because I've seen so many partnerships for one or two people, let alone 11, like you said, over the years, just not work out. And now decades later, every single time I'm watching a movie, like even if I'm like on the shelf of like, I don't know if I should watch this. And then I see you're in it or Tom Lennon's in it or Carrie's in it. I'm like, I'm watching and it's always awesome. And I'm always waiting, like, you know, seeing like hell baby. I just watched. And I'm like, when's the next person from the staff going to pop up? And I think it's great that you guys are all working together together. What is that secret sauce that years and years and years later on, you guys are still incorporating each other in all those projects. Cause there's never one. It's always like two, three, four or five popping up and everything that's going on. And I, I love that. It always makes me like the movie better. It's just that we like each other, you know? It's just that we have known each other since we were 17, 18 years old and we like hanging out and we like doing stuff together and we make each other laugh. So I think when we have the opportunity to do stuff together, we do. Uh, and I also, I wanna work with those guys um, either in front of the camera or behind the camera uh, or just show up for them. And we've been lucky that we've all managed to kind of carve out, you know, enough success in this industry that we're able to call on each other um, at times. And that's, that's been great. Is that somehow tied to just over the years, knowing that you guys can rely on each other to come in and like do the job, whereas I'm sure, you know, you're bringing new people, you're not really sure how they work, but you guys kind of know each other so well. And I think there's so much to be said for, for just being reliable in anything you do and knowing you can call that person to show up and do the job. Is, does that thought process go into it or is it just kind of like you said? No, it's, there's a lot of trust there. Um, it, it, and you see this a lot in comedy. You see uh, that groups of people work together throughout their entire careers. And it's for that reason, it's because you trust them, you like them, and there's a shorthand there. And so much of comedy in particular is about finding the right tone and knowing what the tone is. Um, and when you're just walking onto somebody else's set and somebody else's vibe, it's not always easy to know what that is. It's, it, in fact, I find it really hard. But with these guys, I feel like I, I kind of know what to do and I know they trust me and I know they'll give me some rope and it's good. It's, 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 it's just, it, those are my favorite people to work with. That's awesome. You know, and I know I, I've heard you say before, sometimes you don't really love talking about all the past projects because you have so much new stuff going on. But after all those years doing that reunion and seeing how much money you guys raised for charity and how many people were on there and the, the money that they were paying for the state memorabilia, that, that has to feel good. Oh, it was great. You, when we did a, a reunion special during COVID and we were raising money for uh, different voting organizations. Yeah, it was really, it was great and surprising and, <laughs> um, and fun. I mean, it was just fun hanging out and, and doing a night like that. 
It was incredible. I enjoyed it a lot. You know, another thing that I was listening to you talk about, I would not have guessed this, but I love the fact that you were actually a fan of punk rock. And I heard you talking about some of the shows you've seen back in the day, going to see Fugazi and the Descendants, the Ramones. I had a band we played with the Descendants years ago. And like, you know, I, I love that. And I wouldn't have pegged you as a punk rock guy, but you brought back so much memories when you started talking about CBGBs and Maxwell's. Because I remember going to see like the Descendants at like the Wetlands or Coney Island High and all that stuff. Um, What, what kind of... um. What kind of, was that what you were doing? Were you playing in bands? Were you into punk rock growing up? Or were you kind of into all different styles of music? Uh, I got into punk, I guess, early in my high school career and ended up starting a band my senior year, um, a hardcore band. And yeah, we performed, um, you know, locally. We did one show at CB's, which was like, you know, you literally could sign up to perform at CB's. It was like basically like an open <laughs> Um, But we did. And that was really fun. And yeah, I saw a lot of shows there. I saw a lot of shows at um, City Gardens in Trenton, New Jersey, um, which was like the big punk club in New Jersey. And, you know, I was kind of a scrawny kid. And at the time, well, I guess probably still, but, you know, there was a lot of like animosity between like the skinheads and the like um, straight edge kids, or there were different subsets of skinheads. And like those shows, were like they always felt scary and violent. And maybe that's why I liked them so much. Like there was just something very primal about it. Um, and for a high school kid, I mean, that's pretty awesome. I lived for that. There was nothing better than like knowing the weekend was coming up and you and your buddies were going to throw like some 40s in a bag and take the train to the city. <laughs> and I remember like being at those shows, like going to see all these hardcore and punk bands and me and my friends would literally like quote the state the whole way there. Like a girl would be mad at me. I'd be like, what's your problem? And she'd be like, why haven't you seen my baby, Michael? And I'd be like, oh, <laughs> so it was great, man. I, I love when those worlds kind of come together. So you know, initially when I, when I wrote to you, and again, thank you again for doing this. It's a big mm -hmm. deal. I appreciate it. Um, your initial response was like, hey, it looks like you have a real estate podcast. And I did do that for SEO, but I do really enjoy talking to people that are entertainment, that are artists, that are comedians, because I find so many parallels for entrepreneurs and artists. And one of them you talked about was the economic anxiety factor. And I think that that's such an important thing to, to look at because, you know, person after person, no matter how good they're doing, how I feel like everybody always feels like I'm as good as my last deal, as good as my last movie, as good as my last special but we keep chasing it, you know? So talk a little bit about the economic anxiety that you feel and you talk about a little bit in your book, because I, I think it's something that everybody can relate to that's chasing any kind of passion, especially when things get tough or like COVID and stuff we're going through now. It's, it's a very common baseline. Well, like I said in the beginning, like I just figured I'd be poor my whole life. I figured <laughs> I'd be just sort of moving around from like city to city, doing little theatrical productions. And when... I started making money and I, and you know, when the state was on, like we weren't making very much money at all. Um, but I was really disciplined about saving from the very beginning because I just sort of figured I'm like, it's going to come tumbling down at some point. Like it, I'm, it's just going to be, it's not going to be good at some point. And that anxiety has never left in some ways. I think that anxiety is good. It's motivating. Um, it can keep you hustling. And if there is a parallel, and I think you're right, between entrepreneurs and people in entertainment, it's that. It's, it's that constant hustle. It's that constant sort of being on the lookout for opportunities and thinking about what the next thing is and getting excited about it and figuring out how to sell it, networking to a certain extent. Like it's being in this business, 
is being an entrepreneur. You are kind of your own CEO and you are your own CFO, uh, particularly, you know, early in people's careers, you're your own publicist. Like you have to, you have to kind of do everything. Um, and additionally, you have to figure out how to be good at your craft. It's a lot, it's a lot to take on. And I'm sure that's true for people who start their own businesses. I mean, you, you have to kind of do it all. You have to put it all on your shoulders and run with it. I think that's a good thing. I think it's a healthy thing. I'm glad to have done it. And I'm glad that I was disciplined about saving because like, COVID did fuck me, you know, like I basically didn't work in over a year and I've always been pretty careful about making sure like I have enough money to survive for like a year if it all goes to shit. And when it all went to shit, like I had to figure out how to survive for that year. I do think it's important to, you know, keep nest eggs and, and, and be disciplined about that stuff. There are a lot of actors and sometimes I'm guilty of this as well who, you know, just sort of are flighty and are just sort of like, well, I'm an actor and I'm an artist. And I'm not going to worry about any of the business stuff. And, you know, I think, I, think, I think you have to have your mind on your money at least a little bit, maybe more than a little bit. Um, and just be aware of what you're doing financially because, it, because that component will allow you to do all the rest of it will allow you to do the artistic stuff. Yeah, in some ways it's easier when you aren't making money as an actor. Um, in some ways it's easier when you are a struggling artist because you construct your life in such a way that you can do that. Once you've had some success and say you started a family and you have kids like I do, you know, there's a monthly nut you have to hit. And this is a very uncertain business. And yeah, that, that economic anxiety never goes away. I agree. You know, I, I see with business guys, I see with a lot of my fighter buddies that, like you said, they always go in scared. There's never a time that you're going into that and you're not afraid. And I feel like the times that I hear guys just get mauled or just go crazy, you know, get a bad deal, lose everything in the deal. When you ask them that, that anxiety and that fear isn't there. So I do agree that I think that there's a level of protection when you feel that to keep your senses up and make sure you're aware of stuff because there is some danger and you do have to have some sort of not only emotional intelligence, but I think money intelligence for everything you do is very important, but it is a fine line because you can, you know, scare yourself back into a nine to five job. If you do it too much, how do you balance out like your irrational fears versus your rational fears and keeping yourself positive? You know, when you have things like, you know, I, I know you were supposed to get like the late, late show and, and then you did. So the, there, there is a lot of ups and downs, just like we see where you got to deal. And then the next day that it fell through and then the next day you have a buyer and it, it's hard not to get like drained and emotional by that. You got to keep picking it up and keep your eye on the prize. How do you do that for yourself? It took a lot of years to learn to sort of stay level and stay sane through ups and through downs. It's still not easy. I mean, there's still a lot of challenges that come along with, expectations and, and, you know, thinking you're making really good progress on something and then it stalls or it disappears or it goes backwards and you have to, you know, sort of keep pushing forward. I think you just learn over time how to sort of regulate yourself emotionally, because if you don't, it will kill you. I mean, it, this business and maybe any business will just burn you up and, you know, leave you a little cinder by the side of the road. Like you, you have to figure out just how to regulate yourself emotionally or, or you just won't survive. I mean, there's just, 
you know, it's, it's just too competitive. It's too, there's just too many ups and downs. Um, and, you know, like in any business where you are selling a product and there's a pool of buyers, you know, most buyers, their instinct is going to be to say no, whatever your product is. And when your product is yourself, that can be, you know, challenging and draining when the no's keep coming. That's hard. I feel like that's really the key to anything, you know, whether it's martial arts or business or acting, it's learning how to keep taking those no's and taking those beatings and just keep getting up and going after it and going after it. Has that tenacity been something that's always been in you? Or is that something, again, that you kind of had to callous up over the years? I think it was always in me. I mean, I knew, like I said, from an early age that I wanted to pursue this business. And I also knew that I wasn't going to give myself a fallback. I just figured I would just keep going and let the chips fall. I got really lucky because it, they fell for me when I was pretty young. Would I have kept going if you know nothing had happened by the time I was 30, 35? I don't know. I, I'm glad I didn't have to face that. <laughs> but you know, you know I, I know what it's like to this day to wake up and just be like, exhausted from the hustle, exhausted from the grind, exhausted from just like putting in years and years of effort and um, feeling like you don't want to work that hard. Like, I know what that's like. Um, and there are times when I don't want to keep going and then I get reinvigorated, you know? It, it's, it's just, it's, a, it's the battles don't stop. And I also think it doesn't matter what level you're at. You know, whether it's some, whether you're just starting out or you're, you know, have a little bit of success or a lot of success, those battles just keep going. They don't change. Um, the money may change, the, the, the scope of something might change, but that daily, like getting up and fighting for shit, I don't think that changes. I agree. You know, after, you know, 15 years in business every day, I still feel it every day I go to jujitsu. It's the same thing, same guys, but on the drive there, I'm kind of, maybe I should turn around or I really want to go. I should really be watching Netflix, you know? And I think it's that thing of when you go through and you just push through anyway, you know, I think that that's where people, especially this segues perfectly into the next topic of social media. I think that they see all the highlights, you know, oh, Michael's been in all these shows. It's got to be great for him. He probably doesn't have, they don't understand that like all those highlights, that IMDB reel that you get to share, there was so many no's in that. There was so much disappointment in that to get where you are, you know, that didn't happen by accident. And I know you're, you're very active on, on social media. And I, and I want to talk about this because to me, it's the kind of thing that could be used as a weapon or as a tool. And you keep in touch, but you're funny with it too. Like the stuff that you talk, like how many slices of pizza am I going to have today? And I find myself checking, like, did he have two? Did he have three? Like, and I, and I think it's really funny. And you, you keep that, that engagement there. And I was listening for it in your book, which we'll definitely talk more about the book, but I was listening to see if there was going to be some talk about social media in there, because I think, you know, kids growing up, especially your son, I think is, is in college and I was a little older but I watched like my nieces and nephews and the stuff that they're seeing and getting into on TikTok or like their kids. And they're like, Oh my God, this one on the school forum posted. And now she has seven less followers and all day long, all they're checking is their followers and who like this and who like that. And it becomes, you can see the addiction. You can see the unhealthy and how they get that payoff 
when somebody likes their stuff and the disappointment or the crash when somebody says something negative about them. And, you know, I don't envy it. I don't know how I would feel if I had somebody on the internet t- telling me I'm short or I'm fat or whatever every day. You know what I mean? I, I, it's tough. So I'm curious on that side of it. Have you had talks with your son about how to handle himself on social media? Cause it's a footprint that's there forever or how to handle the trolls or the hate or the, you know, whatever it may be. I, I feel like it's a very important topic. What's interesting is that his generation and, and my daughter's generation, they're two years apart. They've grown up with it. And in a lot of ways, I feel like, you know, they're probably better equipped to teach me than I am to teach them. They understand the nuance and the subtlety and the importance or lack of importance of it, I think, in some ways, better than people my age do. My son in particular is not really on social media, I'm sure by choice. Um, Mm -hmm. He doesn't, I don't think he wants to have any kind of public face. My daughter is much more active on social media. And yeah, we, we, we have had conversations with her. Um, you know, and she blows us off. I mean, she doesn't, give a shit. <laughs> you know, but for me, I think I realized early on with Twitter that it was just a good outlet. It was just a good way for me to just share random shit and, and be funny. There were times over the last four years where m- my Twitter account became really strident um and pissed off but i think i mean i know i just never thought about it too much i never i never i was never too deliberate with it like i knew it was helpful and i knew it could be useful but i i i never really tried to shape any kind of narrative around my social media and i'm i've always been really conscious of not only showing the highlights like you said like i think it's important that people who maybe are thinking about being in this business, understand exactly what you just said, that the amount of time you're spending at a premiere, for example, or getting your picture taken in a way that you like mm-hmm. is infinitesimally small compared to all the just like sweat and toil and aggravation and hustle that you're putting in. I, I try not to shy away from that stuff. I, I try to talk about it when the opportunity is there because I just think it's it's important. I think it's important for people to understand that it's a job, you know, it's a job like any job and you do the best that you can and you try to clock out at the end of the day and go home and have a life. If you have been kicking yourself that you didn't start investing in real estate sooner, 2020 is coming to an end. Let's start 2021 off on a good note by getting you into some real estate, whether you're beginner, intermediate or advanced. Any way you're looking to get it on a residential, commercial, land development, wholesaling, fix and flips, whatever it is, let's find a way to get you involved in some projects, get you some properties, whether you want to sell some properties to me, whether you want to buy some properties from me, whether residential, fix and flip, cash flow, multifamily, whatever it is you're looking for, let's figure out a way to get you involved or find a way for us to partner up on some deals. Go to www.nicknicknick.com, go on the consultation tab and figure out how to schedule an appointment to talk about where you fit in if you are not sure, or you can just reach out to me on any of my social media channels. If you go on www.nicknicknick.com slash links, you will see all the different ways to connect with me and figure out how we can start to work together, make it happen. Everybody that invests in real estate always just says they wish they did it sooner. Best time to start is today. 
I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I thought you said it so well. I've been listening to your podcast a lot. The Bobcat episode I thought was outstanding, funny, intelligent. There were some good lines in there, but you and him were discussing exactly this. And you you said in, in probably a better way than I'm going to say it about how, yes, there's potential consequences to chasing your dream and failing, but what are the consequences? Are they outweighed by just not doing it and going back and living a life of like the nine to five? Like those consequences are almost worse than going after it and failing. And, you know, that's kind of the story I have to tell myself when I, like you said, want to sit home and watch you know, Netflix all day, or I don't want to get off my ass, or I am just feeling the, the grind of 15 years. And I think that that's a, a really important thing. And again, to me, I think that that's everything is just understanding of like, yeah, there are times that I'm going to look and see, well, my buddy who is a cop, like he's not dealing with this, but then you, you get a role or you get a deal or you get something, you realize that like, you know, I've always looked at it as even if I made a living like everybody else did, but I get to stay home, hang out with my dog, hang out with my kids. Like, like you said, you create the narrative of the life you want and you kind of build something around it, I think is very powerful. And I love the way you choose your words to describe that. I do think it's true. I mean, I, obviously I do because I said it that the consequences of not doing something may outweigh the consequences of doing something and failing. There's, I think there's some satisfaction, maybe a lot of satisfaction in saying, I took my shot. Like I, I, I was up there and I hacked away and I took my swings and maybe I struck out. Okay. But I, I had to get up the plate, up to the plate to see. I would much rather live with that than live with the regret of not having tried. And I, I do think there are always excuses not to do something. There's always reasons why you now is not the right time. Now, you know, I'm not the right person. I don't have what it takes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I tell myself those things all the time. But in the end, what I have found for myself is that if it's important to me, or if I can't shake whatever that thing is, I'm going to do it. Um, and whether I succeed or fail at it almost isn't relevant because I don't really, I, I generally don't really measure success or failure by, from, from ex, you know, outside in. I, I, I try to measure it from inside out. So, you know, the books are a good example. I, I've, I've written several books and I, I honestly don't even keep track of the sales figures. I, I have no idea how well or not well they do because it's, it's not that important to me. When a TV show is on that I'm on, I generally don't really pay very much attention to the ratings at all. Obviously, if a show is doing well, that's great because it means, you know, hopefully we get to do more, but I'm usually, I'm not measuring how I feel about it by how other people feel about it. I'm not immune from it. I mean, I'm definitely like aware of uh, bad reviews. I'm aware of criticism. I'm aware of all of it, but it's usually it's it's usually not my yardstick for for how I feel about something. Mostly because I know how hard it is just to do anything. It's just hard to do stuff. Like if somebody writes a book or makes a movie, and maybe it's not the best book or the best movie. Like my hat is off to them. You know, my hat is always going to be off to the person who tried. And who, and who saw something through to the end. I think that's an amazing accomplishment. It's very, very hard to do anything, particularly something in the arts where the odds of you being like financially remunerated for it are so low. You know, the odds of somebody seeing your movie or it getting out there or it getting bought by a distributor or whatever, like it's, it's all just so low. 
And if you can persevere through all of those ups and downs and those challenges and get the thing made, that's a huge win. It's a huge win. I agree. I think Joe Luchulio said almost the same thing where somebody was like knocking him or somebody he knew for making a move. And he was like, how many movies have you tried to make? No, you have no idea like what it takes to even, even make a shitty movie is like a huge accomplishment. So, you know, same thing, you know, guys, uh, the keyboard warriors, like my friends fighting for a world title. And then there's people online like you suck. And I'm like, you have, you, you don't even job. You know what I mean? Like this guy's a professional athlete. So, you know, h- how do you, how do you handle that? Cause I know, especially people can be ruthless on social media. And I know I heard you on the, uh, the wheelbarrow full of dicks podcast, which is what my mom keeps saying mine should be called, but I guess it's taken already, but they were talking about how you, what is that? It's a very good title. (laughs) It's WFOD, but they were trying to to ask you about how do you handle trying to give more attention to the positive people that are commenting versus the negative? Because I do see it's just people almost can't help it. Somebody says something nasty and you want to almost feed that versus like, you know, the compliment. How do you balance out just not letting that bother you? Well, it did bother me when I first started, you know, when I first started on social media, the way I think it bothers most people when they first get invested in and involved in social media, like, you know, people are just sort of taking shots at you. And you're like, wait, like, I thought I was an okay person. And people are going to tell you, no, you're a shitbag. You're a real shitbag. And I'm going to, I'm going to make you know it. Um, And then after a while, you're just like, it it just rolls right off. Um, If, if, something bothers me, if something's like, like hurts my feelings or whatever, which doesn't happen very much, but when it does, I hope I have the presence of mind to at least ask myself like why that's bothering me. What is it about the, what is it about whatever they said that it's getting to me? Like, what is the truth in that? Or my fear of the truth about that, that, that is um, nagging me. Um, I think that's sort of worth exploring for yourself, like worth understanding what's going on with that. But most of it's just dumb shit. Like most of it's just <laughs> like, you know, you're, you're not funny, you were never funny, like you suck and blah, 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 blah. And while I agree with a lot of that, it doesn't bother me that much anymore. I think you're very funny and uh, screw all that. <laughs> You know, parlaying that now into your your podcast, I I love your podcast. The guests you have on there, the conversations you have on there. I knew you had Amy Schumer on there. I used to hang out with her a lot when we were kids. Actually, going to the punk rock shows and stuff. Um, you know, Kevin Smith, Judd Apatow. You've had some huge guests on there, and you've had Katy Perry on there. So mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because initially, you know, I'm listening and I'm hearing you going to Descendant shows, and you're a punk rock kid. Would older punk or younger punk rock Michael be mad at professional Michael for interviewing Katy Perry today? No, of course not. I mean, the, point, the point of my podcast, How to Be Amazing, is interviewing people who have accomplished stuff in their lives um, and trying to understand what makes them tick. And I don't think younger Michael would give a shit that he was talking to. Uh, I'm trying to think who would have been the equivalent at the time. I, I can't even think of somebody. Debbie Gibson. I was going to say that, actually. I was going to say that. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, no, I hope not. I mean, if younger Michael was like that, then he would be the asshole in that situation. I like that. Well said. And I, I do want to congratulate you for holding it together because it, it was embarrassing, dude. She was gushing over you. You could tell that she was into you and she was making it a little uncomfortable. So you held it together well. Oh, I don't even remember that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, uh, that's nice of you to say, 
No, I just remember like me trying to get her to focus. Like she was just, <laughs> kidding, I'm just kidding with you. <laughs> <laughs> kind of scattered. No, it was good, man. You did awesome. So how did the, how did the idea for the podcast come about? You know, cause I, I think you're a natural and I actually, I, I love it. I think it's very entertaining. I think you're a great host. You ask great questions and I think all your guests have been outstanding. Um, the idea for the podcast came about, it wasn't, I wasn't even looking to do a podcast, but two women that I know um, named Mary Shimkin, Mary Shimkin and Jennifer Brennan were thinking about putting together a podcast and I had worked with them um, and they asked me if I would be interested in doing something with them. And I said, sure, why not? And then we, the three of us together brainstormed what it could be. Um, and so we, I think the three of us were interested in creativity and process and understanding how people do what they do and why they do it. That's where the, the germ of the podcast came from. And it was important to me personally that the people we interview not be limited to show business. In fact, I wanted to make sure that wasn't a majority of the people we interviewed. And we've interviewed economists and mathematicians and poets and astronauts and um, athletes and all, all kinds of different people because creativity expresses itself in every field, in every endeavor. Um, that spark of just like expression is universal. It doesn't, it doesn't focus itself into any one particular channel. And so it was important to me that, that we speak to as wide a variety of people as we can. I think that that's awesome. And I, I like some of the ones, like when you interviewed David Wayne and you guys were like, you know, we've known each other for years, but I'm learning stuff about you during this interview. And, and that's kind of what I found with this is there are people that I've known forever. And then you get an hour to just talk to them with your undivided attention. You start to learn things about people that you've known for decades that you never knew before. Is there anything you've taken away for any of your interviews that was kind of like the most surprising or profound that helped you kind of bring that into your professional or personal life? Um. I interviewed Tim Gunn and uh, I was sort of um, taken aback by how vulnerable and open he allowed himself to be. Uh, and I th I've tried to take that. I've tried to, to, to take that spirit of openness into my projects, um, because that wasn't always easy for me. It's still not easy for me. Um, that's probably the, that's probably the one that sticks out the most. Well, it definitely shows leading into the next topic, your book, a better man, a mostly serious letter to my son. You know, I listened to it and I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure what to expect because, you know, again, I, I've seen you in the title. But you could have been throwing me off with that. I don't know. I don't know what kind of games you're playing over there. You know, but I see you as obviously on the state doing some stuff. And then I, I just watched Insatiable, which holy crap, I didn't expect that to get so dark. But what a great show. And you're excellent in that. But you play a lot of different roles. And I was blown away right from the beginning of how intense and how open you were with that entire book. I thought it's exactly like you said. I mean, if you were looking to be more open, I don't see how you could be more open than that book. And I, and I read most of it. And then I listened to the audio and I thought you did an outstanding job of reading that because I've heard it's really tough to actually do the audio part of that. I heard it's an experience in itself, but talk a little bit about the book because I highly recommend it. I, I thought it was 
I, it's interesting on so many different levels for so many different reasons. And I thought it was very well done. Well, it is, um, it is in the title. I mean, I called it a better man, a mostly serious letter to my son, because that is in fact what it is. It is a meditation on what I've learned as a guy and trying to pass down to my son lessons that I thought could be valuable and useful to him as he at the time was graduating high school and heading off to college. Um, and I did try to be as open and honest as I could be. And I deliberately was not relying on jokes or the crutch of humor. I wanted it to be as sincere a book as I could possibly write. And I think I did that. I mean, so like when I say, like, I don't pay attention to sales figures, like I really don't know how that book has done from a sales point of view. I have no idea. But I measure it by, I measure my satisfaction with it by did I accomplish what I set out to accomplish? And I think for the most part, I did. You know, I think any author or any creative person will tell you like, you know, I don't know, I don't know that anybody get, ever gets to 100%, but I, I, I feel like I, I, I set out to do something that I knew would be really challenging for myself and I did it. And so I feel really good about that. I feel like, you know, people say, children watch what you do, not what you say. And a couple of the key points that I took notes away from is exactly what you're saying. You know, I know one of the lessons you wanted to put out to your son was take pride in things no one will notice but you. And I feel like that's kind of what you're saying is regardless of what the sales are, you did it and you wrote the book, you know, and you're proud of that regardless of the outcome, the effort that you put in is something that you'll know how hard you work for that. And I think that that's a great lesson going into like another thing you took away is believing yourself enough to fail. Everyone loses except failure and learn. I think that those lessons that you're pushing to your son is probably the theme of what we've been talking about for the last hour and why you seem to be very proud, regardless of the outcome of the book, which I'm sure it did great. But if it didn't, those, those still stay. I think it did fine. I have no idea. I really don't know, but I think it did fine. Yeah, I love it. And I was interested. So if you're not setting those sales, I'm just, I'm always curious who the biggest consumer is because, you know, again, you have so many different fans from so many different backgrounds that know so many different versions of you. And, you know, I, I didn't know like the state, the people that grew up on the state probably are in that position now that they have those kids that they're going, I'd love to hear. He's probably going through the same things as me, but was there a specific type of demographic or consumer you're going after? Just, it was really just for your son and whoever kind of read it and enjoyed it. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I was trying, I, I, it was written to, I mean, you know, the primary reader in my mind was my son. I wanted to make it accessible, obviously to a wider audience. I just assumed maybe correctly, maybe incorrectly, that the people who would buy it would be primarily women because men don't want to look at themselves. <laughs> um, so I figured it would probably be mostly women, but whether or not it was or it wasn't, I really don't know. Or asked for any kind of breakdown about who was writing it or reading it. You know, I, I think it is one of those books that when you read it, regardless of what chapter, there's going to be something in there for everybody to make them feel a little bit uncomfortable and give themselves some some extra self-awareness to really look at like, what am I doing? Am I pushing out? Like there's so many misconceptions about masculinity and just being open. And even the things like you talk about, like the three big words being, I need help. I think there's so many timely things right now for everybody in the world, regardless of the age or where you live or what you do, that helps on some level to read that and, and go, okay, like I'm not alone. This does make sense. I do relate to this. So, you know, that, that's why I think it's really interesting because I would imagine that 
some of the reasons why somebody would read that book, once they get into it, they're going to find a whole other reason or something that they're going to take away from it. And I thought you did a great job of kind of branching that out and really tapping into what's inside you, which I think people can relate to across the board. Thanks. I hope so. I mean, I, I hope that the things that I've learned are applicable to other people. I think they are. My experiences in this world are certainly not particularly uncommon and in terms of the big stuff, you know, love and death and sex and relationships and being a parent and all the rest of it. Like, you know, I think my experiences are probably pretty common and the issues that I've had to deal with as just as a guy, I think are probably pretty common too. insecurity and body issues and feeling like, you know, you're, every guy I think feels like in some way they're not measuring up to some ideal of what manhood is supposed to be. And I thought it was, I, 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 I hoped it would be helpful to talk about those things head on and to do it in a way that wasn't academic or preachy or acting like I had all the answers. Cause of course I don't, I'm just a jerk off on BH1. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know, but I'm doing my best. No, I thought you did a great job with it. And even your comedic timing in there, you capture attention so well and you talk about all these topics, some historic, some personal, and then out of nowhere, like I won't expect it. And then you'll just kind of sneak a joke in there and I'll be like, ah, that's good, man. <laughs> so it was good. I, I thought it was entertaining. I thought it was deep. I thought it was relevant. And uh, I appreciated the, the honesty. And it seemed like there was literally just no ego in it at all. It was truly just an open letter, like you said. And uh, I, I think that that showed. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate that, Ben. That's really kind of you. Definitely. Well, I appreciate you writing it. I thought it was amazing for you to share and put yourself out there. It's, it's not easy, especially these days with social media and you did it. And uh, so I like to call this a victory lap. You've been very great with your time. I'll kind of wrap this up in the last uh, 10 minutes here. And um, one of the questions being, did your son read the book? <laughs> he's read most of the book. According okay. to him, he's read most of the book. He has not read all of the book. And why would he? I just wrote a very heartfelt letter to him. Why would he read it? Why, <laughs> why bother? Um, I will say, that one good thing is when I asked him about it, he was saying that he thought it was well-written, but that there wasn't anything in there that he felt like we hadn't talked about or he didn't kind of know already. And I thought that was good. You know, I thought it was good that in my own fumbling way as a father, I have hopefully provided him with some guidance and whatever wisdom that I have so that he wasn't like totally caught off guard and wasn't like, whoa, dad, this isn't you at all. Like, you're an asshole. Like, you know, it was, that was reassuring to me in a way that he wasn't totally surprised by anything that was in that book. That is good. I like that. Do you have a, uh, any advice for a younger Michael Ian Black, knowing what you know now about life and business you would pass on? Or is that kind of what your whole book is? It might be what the whole book is, but it's also, I mean... The thing is like the younger me wouldn't listen to the older me, you know, <laughs> the younger version of us doesn't give a shit what the older version of us has to say, um, which I maybe am grateful for. I may be grateful that the younger version of me wouldn't have taken advice um, because it, it, it required, it required a kind of single-mindedness and in the case of the state and maybe in my own case, a kind of arrogance to just persevere enough to, to get to a position where I can even give myself some younger, my younger self some advice. Maybe the older, the older version of me may have said to the younger version of me, hey, do yourself a favor, get on antidepressants a little bit earlier. 
that will probably save you a fair amount of aggravation and heartache. Fair enough. And, and that is a lot of why I was asking some of those demographic questions was because I know 18 year old me wouldn't have read a book my dad wrote me, but like 30, 35 year old me, I'd probably read it 30 times and I'd probably, you know what I mean? Like, so yeah. I, that's why I thought it was interesting. It's like, I know you wrote this book for your son, but he probably won't really appreciate the lessons or, or like the heartfelt of it for another 10 or 15 years, but there will be a time where it's, it's, it's going to be his Bible. It's going to be amazing. You know, I think everybody at some point, probably dead. you're saying that. when I'm dead, he will pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully not that long. Hopefully it's, it's years and years past there. Ever wanted to play the drums? Or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real McKenzie's, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He has played all over the world and he has also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to 833-632-0585. Again, text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-632-0585 for your free online drum lesson. Um, do, you, do you have a favorite quote? Nope. Okay, fair enough. Um, what was it like to kiss Bradley Cooper? Well, both of us, I think we're pretty stressed out about having to do a love scene with each other. But we it was his first movie, Wet Hot American Summer, and uh, might've been my first movie too. And we both basically just said, like, we're just going to go for it. So it was fine. I mean, it was totally fine. I mean, he wasn't Bradley Cooper then. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, let's yeah. see what he has to say. Everybody, welcome on Bradley Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> you imagine? Ring him right in there. That, you know, that, that's another thing I, I always think is interesting is with social comparison and everything right now and all the people you see getting different roles and doing different things, does it make things... I'm sure at times stressful, you know, you're on Twitter, you see maybe somebody, you know, gets a role. It's easy to go, oh man, I wanted that role. But at the same time, does it help you with your confidence long-term on those tough days when you go, Hey, I was right next to this dude, Bradley Cooper, who was just another guy, like in the Stella sketches that you guys have done it, which are hysterical. Like some of them, he doesn't even have lines in. And then he turned out to be, yeah, yeah it's, it's so great. Like the yoga stuff and searching for Stella itself. I could go on for hours about that. That was a great show. And, and I love Michael and Michael have issues, but seeing people that you know, that you've worked work right next to that are doing the same things you do every day get these big roles, does that help push you to go, okay, I'm doing the right thing, I'm on the right track, and it's gonna be my day, it just wasn't my day today? I think I've learned to stop making comparisons. I think I've learned that. There was a time in my life where I couldn't be happy for people who were doing better than me, like that time has passed. Like I can be legitimately happy for people who are doing well. There's absolutely moments of frustration and moments where you're like, fuck, like, you know, I could have done that. That should have been me. That could have been me. But less and less the older I get, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely happy that people are doing well. And it might also be that I, I, I have much more perspective on it. My career, like the showbiz part of my life 
is not the most important part of my life. You know, it just isn't being present for my family as cliche as it sounds like that's much more important to me. And just my own daily happiness is much more important to me than showing up on some TV show or being in some movie. Um, I like doing that stuff and I want to keep doing that stuff. And I hope I get to keep doing that stuff. And I think I would miss it if I couldn't do it, but my perspective in life has changed where it's not the be all end all. And I don't really measure myself that much by it anymore. I, it wasn't always true. I mean, absolutely wasn't always true, but I think with age that comes. It's a great answer. You know, and I, I spend a lot of time talking to people that are overly consumed with how strangers they'll never meet on social media are reacting to them or perceiving them at the expense of neglecting the people that are in front of them that are their friends and family every day. And I feel like what you just said is you've done the opposite of what most people are making the mistake of doing. And I, I respect that a lot. I think that that's awesome that you're, you're that way and that you've come to that realization, I think is amazing. Well, when, I, when my wife and I first got married in 1998, we moved to Los Angeles. We were doing the last season of Viva Variety and we just felt like let's do it in LA because it would be sort of a nice transition into whatever the next part of our careers is gonna be. And so we went out there and we did it. And after about a year or so of being in LA with my wife, I was just like, you know what, this sucks. Like LA sucks. Like I see, I see a life for myself here and it's not a life I feel like I want. So let's go. And I knew at that time that I was probably sacrificing professional success for personal well-being. And I was more than happy to make that trade um, because the professional success the goal of professional success is to get to personal well-being, I feel like. So why not just cut out the part that I don't like and figure out a way to be well in an environment that I feel like is healthier for me and in, in which I can be happier. And I'm glad I did it. I mean, I really believe that I did sacrifice for some professional success, maybe even a lot of professional success by relocating. I, I put myself in an environment where I could be with my wife and raise a family in a, in a way that I was comfortable doing. And I don't regret it at all. I'm, I'm grateful that I made those choices. But that's not to say, you know, it's not, those are my choices. It's not to say that they were right, they would be right for anybody else. I have tons of friends who are raising families out in LA and doing really well and happy, but I just knew it wasn't going to be me. That's good self-awareness, man. And like you said, you know, you write your own narrative and you have to do what makes you happy. And I think you've done a great job of that. And obviously, you know, I think it's important for you to make those decisions that your family can see. So, you know, when your kids are growing up, that's what they learn is what you're doing, not what you're saying. So I, I really appreciate this, man. One last question for you before I let you go. Do you have a favorite sketch from the state? Um, yeah, I have a few. So I won't name any that I wrote. <laughs> but Taco Mill gets a lot of love. Taco Man is, is certainly one of them, but there's one called, um, I don't even know what the title of it is. Cutlery Barn, maybe it's called. <laughs> um, and it's basically just four heads coming in 
of the black background looking sort of off camera, sort of looking to the side where they're not really looking at each other and speaking in a dumb way. And it, the sketch makes no sense. There's a talking sandwich in it. <laughs> and it just made me laugh so hard. It made everybody laugh so hard when we were making it. And it's a good, it's such a good example of like, I feel like where we were kind of at our best, where we were just like, so like weird and like off kilter. And, and, and there was, there was nothing traditionally funny in that sketch. There were no real jokes in that sketch. It was all about the presentation and the delivery and the oddness of it. I just really like that. And then Tom Lennon wrote Porcupine Racetrack, which is this big musical number about literally a porcupine racetrack. Uh, I think he wrote it in like 10 minutes and it's just this perfect little piece of comedy and Michael Jan directed it and did a brilliant job with it. That's a great one. There's one called the Jew, the Italian and the redhead gay. Um, that's just <laughs> so stupid, just roommates sort of speaking in the, the broadest stereotypes about their characters. But what really made it fun and funny for us was that sketch itself is probably 45 seconds or a minute. And then it turns into a musical basically where we all come out and it's sort of like we're doing a production from like a number from like hair, um, just singing the Jew, the Italian and the redhead gay. And just like, it makes no sense, but it's just so joyous and fun and dumb. Um, joyous, dumb and fun, I feel like is where we were sort of at our best. That's awesome. I absolutely, both of those sketches. Cutley Born comes up as a, a a cast favorite a lot. And obviously I can picture that whole thing with the tambourines and the 70s suits and stuff at the end. So it's a great show, man. It really is. It's, it's been one of my favorite shows for decades and decades and decades. It's been really great for me interviewing you and interviewing your other castmates. Um, what's going on with you? How can people find you? What kind of projects do you have going on right now? What's upcoming? Talk all the things, Michael Ian Black. Well, showbiz was shut down for like a year and a half. So... I was doing almost nothing. Um, I'm performing stand-up. I'm on the road. I just shot a movie called Spinning Gold, which I guess will be out next year. I just did a day on some TV show. What was it? What was it? it was a, oh, Search Party. That was fun. And yeah, and that's it. Like, I'm just not, I'm not doing that much. I wish I was doing more. But yeah, I'm usually present on Twitter if you want to find me at Michael Ian Black. Awesome. Well, I will post show nights to, to the state and to your books. Is there, I know there was a, another website that was a great place to go get that. That was kind of like the, the, the mom and pop competitor to Amazon. I heard you mention uh, 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 bookshop.org. I think it's called, which is uh, it's like, yeah, it's like the independent version of Amazon and it, it supports independent booksellers, which is, it's a great website. And I have a new book coming out called I'm sorry, which is a kid's book cool. um, that comes out in September. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I will put all your social links, all your professional links and anything else on there in the show notes for this. This has been really awesome. Any final thoughts before I let you go? No, I'm done with thoughts. <laughs> well, I appreciate that you shared them and I appreciate that you have been sharing them in your book and on your shows for the years. You've given me tons of entertainment and laughs, and this has been a great hour for me. Thank you for sharing your time. My opinion, Black, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, Nick.